Welcome to this special edition of Reuters Sport Insight podcast. I'm Oliver Regan. It was a moment neither the IOC nor the Japanese Olympic organisers ever wanted to imagine. Tokyo 2020 postponed. The world's biggest sporting event, the latest and most significant casualty of the coronavirus pandemic. The rescheduling of the Olympics and Paralympics is being described as the biggest logistical challenge ever undertaken in peacetime. Now that the dust has settled, we'll be reflecting on that momentous decision, the events that led to it, and give you our insight into the key moments that resulted in the year delay. We'll take you behind the scenes in those tense meetings and frantic conference calls. We'll discuss the power dynamic right at the top of the Japanese government and the IOC as we break down this most extraordinary sporting story. Joining me to discuss this is Ossian Shine, Reuters Global Sports Editor and Reuters Sports Correspondent, Carlos Groman. Thank you for joining both. Let's start by reflecting on those chaotic days ahead of the announcement. Um, it wasn't a straightforward scenario, was it? There was conflicting ideas, approaches. Why don't you start to tell us how it all unraveled? Yeah, I think what was interesting, Carly, is there were three very distinct possibilities being discussed. There was, well, the games have to be postponed. They can never, they can never take place in July. From one group of people, another group of people were saying, well, we've got to cancel the games. You can't hold the games. It's impossible. You can't move the date. You can't postpone it. Logistically, it would be a nightmare. And then you have the IOC uh, response, which was, no, no, we're never going to cancel it. It's July the 24th. This is too soon to, to panic. The games will be the games. Cancellation is never, ever being considered. It's not an option. We're not talking about it, which uh, I can't believe was, was entirely the whole truth because the rest of the world was saying, are, are you guys absolutely crazy? We're in lockdown. We're confined to our houses. The streets are empty. This is a kind of dystopian pictures on the news every night. And you've got some guys in Lausanne saying, no, we're going to come together in July and we're going to have an Olympics and maybe there'll be fewer fans and maybe we'll take their temperature on the way in. But don't worry, guys, it's all going to be, be as it is, which, I mean, that just became implausible and, and sort of vaguely insulting the longer he went on with this. Yes, I mean, certainly it, it, uh, the IOC in this whole process didn't win any uh, many friends. Um, uh, insisting on, on the games to take place when athletes really couldn't train, when you had National Olympic Committees asking the IOC, can you please decide on postponement because we are feeling the pressure from the athletes. And instead you had, um, you know, the IOC telling the National Olympic Committees, come on, talk to your governments and, and try to open up those lockdown venues to get special permits for our athletes to train, which was essentially, you know, a move to, to get the athletes back in. But it, it was a desperate move at, at the end of a process that should have come weeks earlier. Yeah, but I think it was a massive misreading of the situation by the IOC. If this is an organization, let's not forget that tells governments what taxes they're allowed to, 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 to use during games time. They, they break national laws and treaties and boundaries whenever they want. They're used to getting their own way. And I think in this case, they figured they knew best and that they could push the Olympics through and probably the, the, the pandemic would be sort of headed the right way by, let's say, May. And then, uh, you know, we'd all have forgotten about it. But, but, you know, I think, as Carol says, as soon as athletes started saying, look, 
we can't train. This is this is not on. Uh, and then I think that the the, the 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 crucial pivot was when the Australians, well, the first the Canadians, but then crucially the Australians, which are such a huge Olympic force, said, "Well, whatever happens, we're not going." I think there was only one way the IOC could go at that point, and I mean, it was kind of uh, how do they do it by you know saving face in some respects. But the added complexity of how how do the Japanese sort of back out of this as well? Because the Japanese were were, were side by side with Bach, saying it's going to be in, in in July. So you had two very sort of powerful stakeholders basically having to turn one eighty uh, and you know without losing face. Yeah, I mean, well, I suppose this brings me on to my my next questions. Really, in terms of this criticism, the IOC of have received and the fact that they did this big turnaround i mean they've been widely criticized is that is that justified i think it's justified i mean you have to look at the ioc as an organization with a tradition of not uh, changing their position rapidly the other thing is that there was a there was a, a gap between uh, athletes and the ioc that has been growing for the last years and that was made very very evident in this case that they just didn't have the pulse of the athletes. They didn't, they didn't know the exact position of the athletes and the problems they were facing. Because you have to consider the athlete that 80% of athletes taking part at the Olympics, so you're talking 10,900 or 11,000 athletes taking part in the Olympics, 80% of those will never come back to the Olympics. They'll only appear at the Olympics once. So for them, it is the pinnacle of their careers. And they're not multi-millionaire footballers, you know. They're, you know, modern pentathlon champions and 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 semi-finalists in the four hundred meters uh, relay. Or, you know, they're making a decent living. Some of them more than others, but uh, they are relying on the Olympics to boost their career or to boost their income or to to boost their their publicity. So for them, it was extremely important to have. Um, uh, preparation that was going to give them their best shot at the Olympics. We like to assume that the IOC thinks like the rest of the sporting world, like athletes, like fans. Like, I mean, they don't. The IOC just wanted to deliver these games and move on. Okay. The other thing is the a lot of the athletes were saying, well, we can't train, so we won't be at our best. Or some countries are in lockdown. It's not fair on them. Other countries will have an advantage. IOC doesn't care about this. I mean, Olympic gold is Olympic gold. It's, it's the ultimate. We all remember those iconic Olympic winning moments. Now, if you have the Australians saying, we're not going to turn up because our athletes can't train, they're in lockdown, it's not fair. Well, I mean, the IOC says, who cares? Less uh, less gold medals for Australia, more for, for kids in St. Nevis. Or, I mean, they don't care. They don't, it's not, they're not invested in one country dominating or doing this or that. They want to put on a great show. And, and, and I think that regardless of this i mean if they could have held those games they would have held them they haven't done this for the good of the olympics or for the good of the the movement or for it, they just really were backed into a corner because as soon as those couple of countries broke ranks and then increasingly athletes and we really saw the power of social media here with athletes coming out it was just it was only ever going in one way yes and also if you look at that meeting uh, with uh, athletes' representatives a week before the Olympics, uh, the IOC said that in that meeting uh, conference call with 200-plus athlete representatives, um, there was not a single voice that said cancel the Games. So I think there is a disconnect there 
that needs to be bridged in the next few years because uh, don't forget that the athletes are the content of the Olympics. Absolutely. And, and, and what about the man at the top of the IOC, Thomas Bach? What's, what's his kind of role in all this? He, he's an interesting character, isn't he? The former fencer turned uh, Olympic power chief. Just give us a, your insight into to how you think he's dealt with this issue. Well, I think he's going to come out weakened. Uh, let's put it that way. When he took over in 2013, it was like a storm taking over the IOC. The speed with which they they, they introduced things, changed things. I mean, he realized that the Olympics needed to change. I mean, his motto was change or be changed. So he pre- preferred to go and do it them himself rather than be forced as an organization to change in the future under different circumstances and conditions. But I think there was a, a, a big misjudgment in this case. I think he will need to do some damage control, and I think we've already seen it. The way he's addressed athletes on several occasions since the since the decision, I think there is a need to go towards them, try to find some way of incorporating in more without the IOC losing control over the over the product that it that it has. I think the the big problem that uh, that Tokyo had, and not just Tokyo but also the IOC, and we come back to this, was their insistence on on saying you know, despite all evidence to the contrary, that everything was fine and everything was going to go ahead. Now, clearly, they they must have been talking behind the scenes. Um, and at Reuters, we broke out a number of scoops in the couple of weeks beforehand that showed they were discussing these things because, you know, with an issue this big and with so many stakeholders, you've got the Tokyo city government, you've got the Olympic organizers in Tokyo, you've got the Japanese government, you've got Abe trying to, you know, he's got political opponents coming at him left, right and center. So everybody needed this to work for their own distinct reason, and their reasons weren't all the same. So this is, I think, partly to explain why it was so chaotic, because you had everybody was trying to appease their own individual, uh, you know, their own individual market and their own stakeholders. But it was all about the Olympics. Japan was always seen as a safe pair of hands, and more importantly for the IOC, it was crucial to have. A successful games. Before that, you had Rio, which was essentially a disaster, and um, almost everyone involved from the Brazilian side has been indicted or charged or suspected of corruption. And before that, you had Sochi, the most expensive games in the history of the Olympics and site of the uh, of the Russian doping scandal. So the IOC was desperate for a feel-good games, and they knew they were going to get it at Olympics crazy. Japan, make them an attractive prospect for future host cities, uh, for future sponsors, and and also a, a successful, hugely successful game for athletes. Um, I think the other thing that we need to remember when, we, when we're trying to figure out why it was so crazy is effectively we had this kind of very twitching Mexican standoff in the last couple of uh, in the last couple of days. And they, they, they both needed it to succeed for their own reasons. So some sort of consensus had to be reached. I don't think either side wanted to, to be the one who, who called it. They wanted to be seen to be working together in collaboration, which is why a lot of the narrative in those, in those final hours was, you know, Arbe, uh, we are in total agreement. It's a joint decision. We've decided that we can't hold it now. We've decided we're going to hold it sometime in the future. So everything had to be sort of done in, in, in footlock with each other. I think a lot of people don't realize how difficult it is to to have a massive oil tanker change direction quickly. Uh, the Olympics are 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 
uh, 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 consist of millions and millions of moving parts and changing those parts quickly is not an easy matter. And don't forget that the last Olympics that were canceled were not 10 or 15 or 20 years ago where the size was relatively similar. It was back in the 40s. So a completely different size, completely different size in terms of finances, numbers of athletes, numbers of sports, numbers of visitors. So I think the IOC found itself in front of a situation which had had essentially never been before. Let's talk about that now then, the task ahead, moving the games by a year. Um, Osh, just kind of sum up what kind of the magnitude of, of what we're looking at now. Well, no, I mean, it is huge. It's got all of Carly's millions of moving parts, as he said. So, you know, massive logistic problem. Thomas Barker's already sort of pre-warned everyone that it's going to be painful in terms of finances. So, you know, they, they don't often like to talk about the vulgarity of cash. So there's going to be some pretty big figures involved. Apart from the logistical issues, which are massive, obviously, as we said before, federations, some federations, smaller ones, obviously not football or basketball and so on, they largely depend on the monies they get at the end of the Olympic Games at the end of the Olympic year. So you're talking about 20, 30, 40 million dollars. That in some cases is 95% or 90% of their budget for the next four years. So that raises the question, what will happen with those federations? When will they get the money? Because they largely depend on that money to operate. Um, That's one thing. And then the other thing is obviously the athletes. If you have 57% of athletes already qualified and they get to keep their spots, what happens with federations or national Olympic committees who in six months' time are going to have a better athlete who who will have better times than the athlete who has qualified and they would want to send them to the Olympics? So I think there's a lot of issues that still need to be addressed, but they cannot be addressed now. They will be addressed over the next 16 months. Absolutely, yeah. Potential minefield. Well, thank you, both for joining us today. Fascinating chat. And obviously, there'll be much more to talk about in the coming weeks and months, I'm sure. Ossian Shine and Carlos Groman dissecting and analysing the events leading to the postponement of the Olympic Games. You can find them both on Twitter at Ossian Shine and at Carlos Groman. And of course, you can search at Reuters Sports. This is a Reuters Sport Insight podcast with Oliver Regan. Find us on Apple Podcast, Google, SoundCloud, Acast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, goodbye.